move forward into our message today, I have another question for you in a completely different idea. But this one is going to be an interactive one. I'm going to need to see hands. I know it can be awkward raising your hand in church, but this time it's okay. How many of you had to return something this week? How long did you spend waiting in line, for those of you who did have to return something, how long did you have to spend in line returning Christmas gifts this past week? If you spent less than 15 minutes standing in line or you didn't have to return a gift at all, let me see your hand. Oh, you lucky dogs, you. You'll notice I did not raise my hand. <laughs> 15 to 30 minutes, raise your hand. That's my category. Anybody more than 30 minutes standing in line? Okay, you guys are all right. <laughs> I had to spend some time standing in line. Uh, I was given a wonderful gift, but unfortunately, it just didn't quite work for me. And so I had to go to Shields. And I pull into the parking lot. I'm walking across the parking lot. And some guy on the way back out says, whatever you're trying to return, don't do it. Just keep it. It's, it's better than standing in line here. And sure enough, I walk inside, and I'm basically in line back to the fish tank. All the way around. It took me over 20 minutes to finally return the thing that I was returning. And what I found out is that returns are obviously, they're a part of life, but they're increasingly impacting the retail industry. Does anybody want to take a guess of how much merchandise is returned over the course of the past year? Anybody want to take a guess on what the number is? Anybody think it's less than a billion dollars? Less than a billion dollars in returns. Less than $10 billion in returns. Less than $100 billion in returns. Less than a trillion dollars in returns. Anybody not know? It's okay. The number, according to the NRF, the National Retail, I don't remember if it's Federation or Foundation, but it's $816 billion in returns. That is a lot. I tried to do the math on the pair of shoes that I was returning and realized that it's something like 20 billion pairs of shoes. Given that there are 350 million Americans, that is a lot of shoes for each American. In fact, it's been speculated that roughly one-sixth of all purchases made over the course of the year, that 16.5% of all purchases made over the course of the year, will be returned. And it felt like many of them happened in the past week. Returns are now becoming such an issue in the retail industry that many stores are changing their return policies. How many of you have noticed that you've had a, a little bit more of a hurdle of returning something at some point in the past year? I know I have. I've noticed that it's more likely to have to pull out a driver's license, produce a receipt that's been by a certain date. They keep limiting who can return their stuff. And a new one, charging for returns. If you purchase things online, there are many stores that are now starting to charge you to send it back. Five, six, $7 a purchase. Yeah, yeah mercy! <laughs> they say that returns have become so disruptive on their model that they just have to find ways to account for it. They're having to hire extra staff, they're changing their policies, they're changing the way that they run their industry. In many ways, it almost feels like life would be so much easier if we just would be happy with what we have. Like, if we would be content with what we have, if we wouldn't 
change our minds. Are we still good? I heard a pop. I'm not sure. We lost the microphone. Let me grab the yellow one while we try to sort this out. Is the yellow working? Hello, hello. Okay. Well, I'll keep preaching, and I'll just be really expressive for the people who are watching online, and they'll figure it out from my language. <laughs> wouldn't life be easier if people wouldn't change their minds and have to go back on their ways? Oh, I know it'd be easier for retail, but you know who it'd be even, it'd be even easier on? Heaven. Life would be easier. There we go. Easier, far less complicated. If we, if we wouldn't change our hearts, wouldn't change our minds, there we go. We would just stick with one way and go with it. Today's message is dealing, I called it heaven's return policy. But my question is, how does heaven deal with people who change their mind? Now, let's be easy here. I recognize today is a holiday Today is a day where many families are together, and it would be really easy if I were to just say, how would heaven deal with people who were headed the wrong way, and they're turning their hearts to God? Because we know that answer. That sermon is a short sermon. How does heaven respond when a sinner turns back to God? I think I heard somebody say, hallelujah. <laughs> a little bit more exuberantly, of course. We find over and over again that heaven rejoices, heaven celebrates, that heaven is excited when somebody gives their heart to the Lord. That's the easy sermon. When somebody who's headed down, hears the call, turns, and they go back up. Hallelujah. But that's not today's sermon. Today's sermon isn't for the sinners who turned into saints. Today's sermon is for the saints who struggle with being sinners. So I know some of you are like, well, that sermon is not for me. If it's not, thanks for worshiping with us today. Hang on for a little bit. The closing song's awesome. But if you are a saint who struggles with being a sinner, I want you to know what heaven does for you. If you don't hear the rest of my sermon, here's the message. We're going to go ahead and go to the next slide, and it's very simple. Even before we fall, Jesus already has a plan to help us to return to him. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for this opportunity we have to be able to gather together to celebrate you and your goodness and to reflect on us and all of the mess that comes with it. Lord, we hear your calls. We know the right things to do. But we still struggle with taking those right steps. And so, Lord, help us to know what to do when we're struggling with our hearts and how to turn our hearts to you. Lord, I pray right now that you'd speak to us and you'd help us to listen. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. Because I was thinking about what story to use to illustrate the idea of a saint who struggles with his saintliness. 
In fact, dare I say, one of the struggles that of, of all of the ones in Scripture, the one that is perhaps most heartbreaking for me to think about, and I say this uh, heartbreaking to think about because um, how many of you, anybody familiar with The Chosen? Some of you are familiar with The Chosen. All of a sudden it hit me while I was working on my message, like, this is going to be a hard scene in a couple of years when that season comes out. If you know the efforts that Peter goes through, the journey that Peter goes through, the way that he, he you know, he might not be perfect, but man, is he, he passionate and he's trying, he's giving it his best. And then I see a verse like Luke chapter 22 and verse 34. If you're there, say amen. If not, just look up on the screen. But Jesus said, Peter, let me tell you something. And by the way, this is coming out of the New Living Translation. Peter, let me tell you something. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. That is a pretty worst-case scenario for a saint becoming a sinner, isn't it? It's one thing to kind of go on the slippery slope, to have the best intentions, but to just kind of fall off like it's a New Year's resolution. I'm not even going to talk to you guys about New Year's resolutions, but you know what I mean. You have the best of intentions. In fact, in the verse just before this, Peter said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'll go to prison for you. I'm willing to commit I have this resolve. I'm ready to go. And Jesus says, by this time tomorrow, you're going to pretend we're not even acquaintances. You don't even know me. But there's something really interesting in this story. The Gospel of Luke has, where the other Gospels tell this story with varying details. If we go back a couple of verses, Luke actually adds some interesting detail. So go back to verse 31, and notice how it opens. Jesus, by the way, has just been preaching to his disciples about faithfulness and celebrating their good choices, and the fact that these saints are finally starting to get their act together. And then he turns and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. You'll notice my translation says each of you, that is correct to the Greek. If you just see his ask to sift you like wheat, the Greek is plural there. So he's talking to all of his disciples. But he specifically says, Satan has asked you to sift each of you like wheat. And to me, that immediately uh, did some things in my brain. The idea of Satan asking for permission to treat Peter badly immediately made my brain go to other stories because this is not an uncommon occurrence. In fact, we know of another story some of you may be familiar with, but when I pointed out this story out to people, the other story that many people will go to is the story found in the Old Testament of the book of Job. You guys all went the same place, yeah. Job chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. Job is accusing God about, about Job, and he specifically says, reach out and take everything away from him, that's Job. Take everything Job has, and he will curse you to your face. Basically, he's challenging God about the way that God has protected him. In a roundabout way, he's saying, can I have a turn to see what happens if he's not? And in verse 12, 
Lord says, all right, you may test him. Do whatever you want with everything he possesses, but don't harm him physically. So Satan left the Lord's presence. Luke 22 sounds like Satan has found a new plaything. But here's the crazy thing. When you go back to Job chapter 1, how was Job's faith before he went into this trial? Thumbs up, thumbs down. How was Job's faith? Thumbs down, thumbs up. See, lots of thumbs up. Yes, Job was upright, righteous. He had his act together. Think about some of the other people who have to go through trials and tribulations found in Scripture. People like Joseph, Daniel, taken into captivity. How was their faith before they went into their trials? We have a pretty indication that their faith might have been pretty good, right? It's an interesting thing to think that the people that God allows to go through tribulation seems to be the people that he's pretty sure he knows how they're going to come out of those tribulations. And so when we look at Peter, don't look at Peter in Luke 22 as saying, maybe he's weak, maybe he's still not a good disciple, maybe he doesn't have his act together. Because do you think there's a reason Satan wanted to target him? Notice what disciple he didn't want to target. Maybe someone like a Judas. Satan goes for the top. And so why don't I just take a note here and say, if you're going through challenges, maybe there's a reason that you have a bullseye on your back. Maybe it's because God knows and Satan knows. You got it together. You're doing okay. I once heard David Asher say something along the lines of, you can tell a lot about a person by who wants you dead. Who wanted, who wanted Peter dead in Luke 22? He's trying to take out an enemy, isn't he? Just some notes here. Observations. So let's go back to Luke 22 and continue reading through that passage that will ultimately lead to what we just read in our, our core verse in verse 34. So Simon, Simon, Lord is, or Satan has pleaded that I can sift you like wheat. Verse 32, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. I want to pause right there in that sentence. I know I'm only halfway through the verse, but I got to pause for a second here. How would it feel to you to know that Jesus prayed for you? Man, if anything would give me a boost, it'd be that idea. The fact that Jesus prayed for you that your faith should not fail. But there's something interesting to think about, and we're going to deal with that in just a second. In fact, you know what? Let's deal with it now. Verse 32 is not done. The second sentence. So when you have repented and turned to me again, Strengthen your brothers. What does that verse imply? And what do we know about the story of Peter? 
Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. And what happens to Peter by the end of the chapter? It's tempting to say that his faith failed. But that perhaps is not the best way to read the Greek, and we'll deal with that in a second. But it does lead to some interesting conversations. The idea that Jesus can pray for something and it still doesn't turn out the way that Jesus asked for it. Why not? And there, of course, we find Peter making his resolution. Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go to prison with you, even to die with you. And that's where we lead to our famous verse, verse 34. But Jesus said to you, Peter, let me tell you something before the rooster crows tomorrow morning. You will deny three times that you even know me. Four verses. Incredible lessons that we can learn. The first thing I want you to know, because I'm a, a good news kind of guy. Uh, the good news that I want you to know when we deal with this, this idea of changing hearts, the first good news I want you to know goes back to verse 31. Well, actually, we're, we're rolling fast here. Verse 31, good news. Satan cannot force us to sin. Notice Satan asks for permission to get involved in this. Could Satan come and take over our lives and just wreck us? No. And in fact, let's make it simple. If... Let's grab some random, totally crazy, absolutely, we all agree this is sinful behavior. Let's suppose, suppose eating cheese is a sin. <laughs> Let's just hypothetically suppose that one, okay? Can Satan come and possess our body and make us run to the fridge? And when we run to the fridge, we pull out the cheese drawer, and not even the good cheese, but that <laughs> the square stuff in the wrapper. I see Andrea already squinching her nose at it. American cheese? Just take it, eat it raw, just straight out of the package. Can you do that to us? My kids would know what that word is. It's cheating. If Satan could possess us and force us to sin... Give me a name of somebody that he definitely would have done that to. Jesus. I hear some from the side over here. He could have absolutely just possessed Jesus' body, made him run to the pantry, and drink a caffeinated beverage. But he didn't do that. Mainly because Coca-Cola didn't exist back then. I'm kidding. Um... <laughs> There is the double side, though. The good news is that Satan can't force us to sin. We can't blame it on Satan. But then reality strikes. So if it's not Satan's fault, whose fault is it? He can tempt. He can encourage. He can make sin look really good. But he cannot force. So whose fault is it when we sin? This actually leads to the bad news. The bad news, of course, is on the flip side. That Jesus prayed for Peter that he would be okay. 
and that Peter, we know, was not okay. The bad news in the story, of course, is that heaven cannot force us not to sin. Once again, God can't possess us and force us as one hand's reaching forth, the other says, don't take that cookie. It doesn't work like that. In fact, we get a glimpse in Galatians chapter 5, verse, seven, or verse 17. I, say, uh, I was going to say multiple verses, but this is a long verse. It actually takes two slides here. Galatians 5, 17 basically explains the nature of the struggle that we are in. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit wants us to give us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other, so you're not free to carry out your own good intentions. Paul also talks about this in Romans chapter 7. We're not going to get into that verse. One verse is enough for today on this topic. I'll give you a whole Bible study later if you need it. But basically what it says here is that both the Spirit... And the anti-spirits are going to call, and they're going to appeal, and they're going to attempt. Both Satan and God are asking for our hearts. And the question is, who will you give yours to today? That is sort of the, the struggle that Peter found himself in. The struggle that Peter found himself in is torn between his desires to follow Jesus and his struggles to... Self-preservation, pride, some of these desires that, that pull him away from God's will, from doing God's ways, ultimately leading to the point where he's going to say he doesn't even know Jesus. And so the appeal to, to Peter here, we know that Satan's asking for him. We know that Jesus is asking for him. And what side is he going to choose? And ultimately, the same question for you. You know the right thing. You know the wrong thing. You know the attractive thing. You know the godly thing. But what thing are you going to choose? So, I'll give you a Bible study later, Siri. Um, <laughs> so we are stuck here in this interesting place where we don't know of our own ways which way to go. I mean, like, we know which way to go. And we know what the world is doing. But what is heaven doing when a saint is thinking about becoming a sinner? Well, we've already gotten some glimpses. We already heard reference in Galatians chapter 5, verse 17, of the Spirit. In fact, the work of the Spirit is to get us to turn from our sinful desires and live godly lives. So this actually leads to an interesting idea. When you go back to verse 32, remember that Jesus said, I have pleaded for you in prayer, Simon, that your faith did not fail. So to know that Jesus is interceding on our behalf and the Holy Spirit's going to come and call into our lives and work on our behalf, ultimately to try to get us to do God's will, we end up finding out that the whole Godhead has mobilized itself. These aren't just angels. These aren't just lessers. God himself, in all of his glory and majesty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all jump to action and say, there is a saint who's thinking about doing something not so saintly. And we're going to do everything we can to call him or her back home. You've got heaven 
fighting to get you to return. Remember today's heaven's return policy? A repeated appeal shows up beginning of Jesus' ministry, shows up at the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. The appeal of heaven is a, a, it's a, a strong sounding word. The word is repent. Shows up over and over again in scripture. The call to repent, to turn from your ways. In fact, that's what repent means. Uh, when you look back in the Greek of it, it literally means, uh, epistrophal literally means, pathfinders, to do an about face. To turn back. You're on a course. Turn back. And that's the appeal. Turn back before it's too late. And this gets into the realm of things like the unpardonable sin. Is as the Holy Spirit calls out to you, please turn back before it's too late. Turn back before it's too late. The unpardonable sin that some of us struggle with is, you know what, that is really shiny over there. And so I just can't help but want to go over there because it looks so fun, looks so attractive. And as we walk away from God and God is calling out from, repent, the further we get away, the lower the volume gets. Until we'll get to a point where we can't hear it at all. That's where the unpardonable sin gets in, is when we stop listening to the calls of the Holy Spirit. So that's why the appeals of repent are out there. Really, God wants us to turn back to him and start coming forward. Take that sinner and turn him back into a saint. But to know that from the beginning, before Peter had even taken that step away from Jesus. Notice in that verse, Jesus has already taken steps to stop Peter from even taking his first step. There's a problem, though. Got a minor issue. Like with the world and people changing their minds, there's a cost involved. Ideally, we walk with God, we have our act together, and everything's going to be okay. But we take a step away from him, we struggle into sin. And what becomes associated with sin? Things like death. The wages of sin is death. The Bible over and over again uses the, the connection between sin and death. There's a problem. There's now a service charge. If you want to return, if you want to come back to God, there's a service charge. You owe for your sin. There is a debt that needs to be paid. Well, luckily in the Bible, you go back to the Old Testament, and you go back to, the, to you know, beginning times. They had a system in place to pay the debt, and the system worked fine enough for them at the time. It was known as a sacrificial system. If you're going to try to read your Bible through in a year, in a couple of weeks, you're going to spend three or four chapters a day reading through the sacrificial system. And what was interesting to me was pointed out by one of my professors, Roy Game. He said, you know what's, what's interesting about the sacrificial system is the sacrificial system was designed to deal with accidental sin. It was not designed to deal with intentional sin. Check me out on this. When you go through your readings, as you start trying to read your Bible through in a year, especially when you get into Leviticus and Numbers, You'll start to see these regulations of what to do when you sin. 
Let me give you an example of one. Let's jump into Numbers chapter 15 and verse 27. In Numbers 15 and verse 27, and this is one of the main passages that Roy Vane will point to when he does his, his presentation on this idea, says, for example, if one individual commits an unintentional sin, the guilty person must bring a one-year-old female goat as a sin offering. That's an oversimplification, but a lot of the sins fit this way. If you accidentally do something, here's a way to make it right. But just a few verses later, in verse 30, we find this. But those who brazenly violate the Lord's will, whether native-born Israelites or foreigners, if you blaspheme the Lord, they must be cut off from the community. The sacrificial system had room for accidental sins. I had no idea that listening to that was a problem. These are accidental or ignorant sins. But what is the, what did I just say? What, what's the negative side? Um, oh yeah, something goes wrong and you either didn't know it happened or you didn't know it was wrong. That's what the sacrificial system is for. But the sacrificial system was not designed to deal with what they call high-handed sins. That's what the Hebrew is. High-handed sins. The people who say, I know it's wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. Because it's fun. It feels good. It smells good. It, whatever. I'm going to do it anyway. Old Testament, not for you. Let's go back and assess Peter once again. Luke chapter 22 and verse 34. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. As any parent knows, one time could be an accident. Twice? Three times? We are definitely dealing with an intentional choice, aren't we? So let me ask you, when Peter makes his intentional choice once, twice, thrice to turn his back on God and make that trip down that path, what recourse does he have to make it right? Under the old policy, none. But luckily, Heaven's policy changed. Want to know how I know? Because I found this in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. Brothers, listen. We are here to proclaim that through this man Jesus, there is forgiveness for your sins. Everyone who believes in him is made right in God's sight something that the law of Moses could never do. Now, that's how the New Living Translation puts it. Let me go ahead and put it this way from the New King James Version. The New King James Version says, and by him, everyone who believes is justified from all of the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. The law of Moses could deal with some of those accidents, could deal with the, the small, the minor, the... But if you want to have a serious debt, you need a serious grace. And where do you get serious grace from? Where do you get serious grace from? 
Jesus, God, the cross. The law of Moses was set up to deal with, with helping people to make those little turns. If you need a bigger turn, if you need a bigger forgiveness, that's what Jesus is for. Jesus' plan in this plan of salvation and this return policy isn't just to call you back and to ask for you to come back, but to actually say, I'm going to do everything I can to pay the debt to make sure that you can come back. I'll pay the fees for you. So, so what was today's take-home message? Even before we fall, Jesus already has a plan to help, him to return, or help us to return to him. Remember, before Peter turned, they were already planning action, already praying for him, already working for him, already calling on his heart, and told him about it ahead of time. There were warning signs before there was even a problem. But was there a plan in place even before that? We just studied through the book of Revelation. We finished off uh, this, this fall with, you know, we did a great series in Revelation. But one of the great promises I find in here is in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Revelation 13 is dealing with the beasts and the dragons and all of those awful things. And we find here this amazing line. And all of the people who belong to this world worship the beast. These are the ones whose names are not written in the book of life. So the, the bad people are worshiping the lamb. They're worshiping the beasts. The good people are the ones whose names are written in the book of life that belongs to the lamb who was slaughtered before the world was made. Who is the lamb? When did he die? Before creation or after creation? After creation. About 4,000 years after creation, if you want to take it as the, the, the shortest chronology possible. We're talking like 39 books after creation. So what's Revelation talking about? What's John talking about here? That he was the lamb slaughtered before the world was made. It's not that he did die. It's that he was ready to die. And that to me just makes me go. Because how was the world made? Good, good, and very good, right? This world was not created with a sin problem. The sin problem came in later. But before there was a sin problem, there was already a sin solution ready to go. Haven't had a policy in place ready to deal with our sins before we even knew that we had a sin problem. Is that good news? So let's go back once again to Peter. Verse 32, I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. And I said, let's deal with the fact that his faith should not fail, because did his faith fail? According to the Greek, the concept here is basically, his faith may have struggled. His faith may have been tested. It may have even diminished a little bit. But was it snuffed out completely? No. In fact, he turned, what does it say? Just as Jesus promised. So when you have repented and turned to me again, which he does do very soon, I want you to turn around and even use that to strengthen your brothers. 
You've been through trials. You've been through hard times. And because you've been there, you can help others who are going to go through that too. Did his faith fail? In the big picture, it was stronger than ever. So is Jesus' prayer answered? It's kind of weird, isn't it? This story isn't about Peter's failure. This story is about heaven's success. It took a saint, rallied together, worked together, pushed together, called, got him to turn back from his ways, and he ended up stronger than ever. And the appeal, of course, push together, strengthen your brothers, so that when they're going through their hard times, you're ready together. Look, still holding strong. Here's the plan. God saw a struggling human and enacted his plans to help him return home and to redeem him. He saw that in Peter's story. Does he see that in your story too? Does he see a saint who's struggling? Does he see a saint who's being tempted, who might be taking that step, who might be calling away? What is heaven doing for you? What practices and policies is heaven putting in place for you? One of the first steps I've been told to getting help for a problem is to admit that you have a problem. Heaven's return policy, one of the steps in there for getting help for your problem, your temptation, your struggle, the challenges you're going through and the appeal that's pulling you away is to admit that you have a problem. I'm looking at a congregation of saints. But let's be honest. I'm broken. I struggle. I'm unworthy. I can put on a good show up front. Got a new suit, got a new tie. I look fine. But way deep down, we all have struggles, don't we? So one of the things I want to do is to acknowledge that heaven's return policy isn't just for y'all. It's for me too. It's for all of us. And so as we close today, we've got a song that I want to sing with you. And yes, I want to sing with you. I brought my ukulele today. Yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm not actually going to sing. I'm just going to strum. But we're going to sing a good old song. Anybody familiar with Just As I Am? Just As I Am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. That good old song? We're going to do a modern take on it. Contemporary, or it's going to be the good old traditional. Yeah, I'll take care of that, Pastor Leandro. Thank you. Thanks. It's going to be a good old song, just as you're used to. But we do add a chorus. 
And I just want to know, is there anybody out there who, as they get ready for a new year, needs to renew their walk with God? Is there something that you need to turn from, need to repent from? Is there something where you want to ask for God to do the same work for Peter, or same work for you that he did for Peter? This song is a bit of an appeal. It says, I come broken to be mended. I come wounded to be healed. This is the chorus. I come desperate to be rescued. I come empty to be filled. I come guilty to be pardoned by the blood of Christ the Lamb. And I'm welcomed with open arms. Praise God, just as I am. This is the chorus that we'll pick up. But it's also the appeal today. While we sing this song, I'd invite you to come forward if you feel broken and in need of mending. If you come empty and in need of being filled. If you want to ask for God's special blessing as you end this year and you get ready to think about a new year and a new walk with God, I invite you to come stand here right up front. And I'd love to pray with you. I know our deacons will normally collect their offerings as we sing the song. They'll catch you at the back at the end of the song. But I invite you to stand and possibly come forward if you feel compelled and sing just as I am.
Now all glory to God, who is able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. All glory to him who alone is God, our Savior through Christ Jesus our Lord. All glory and majesty and power and authority are his before all time and in the present and beyond all time. Amen. Thank you.